This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, not at Conservative Party Conference anymore, uh, back in uh, Red Box Towers in uh, London Bridge. Right, coming up on the podcast today, just moving away from all the stuff, we're not going to talk about pigs, we're not going to talk about petrol, we're not going to talk about uh, politicians and their speeches. Uh, in a rare interview, in fact, it's the first interview that he's ever done, Sir Stuart Eldon, former diplomat who now sits on the parole board, uh, who decides uh, who gets out of prison and who doesn't. Uh, opening up about uh, the uh, difficulties in making those decisions. Uh, do some people deserve to stay behind bars uh, forever? So that um, rare exclusive interview coming up uh, later in the podcast. First, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. I tell you what, let's start with uh, Boris Johnson's speech. Obviously, it was sort of the big moment we were building up to. Even before it started, a uh, Downing Street source told me there were lots of jokes, no policy and some animals. And that that basically sums it up. What did you make of it, India? Well, actually, um, talking of limericks, he's a sort of human limerick, isn't he? He sort of goes, blah, 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 blah. And the, the, the speech was as as energetic and um, superficially appealing as a limerick and entertaining and uh, as far as I could see didn't really have any content um, I I don't understand at all this idea that he kept coming back to that we were going to produce only highly skilled and highly paid people when it seems so glaringly obvious to everybody in the entire country surely that the pickle that we're in at the moment pickle is really kind of understating it is is to do with a shortage of low skilled people you know economies need low skilled people there is no harm or shame in being a low skilled person and that sort of you know i felt that was that kind of rather um uh, made his argument kind of completely pointless and and a bit dim because we can all see it we can see it in empty spaces on the shelves we can see it in lack of deliveries we can see we can see it in vegetables rotting in fields people not working in abattoirs you know great to have high skilled people but we need low skilled people and we haven't got any and people aren't willing to become low skilled people when they could be doing something else so i felt 
that his failure to, to, to unpack that and to address that was really very glaring. And actually, if he's got such a problem with uh, with load skill workers, he might do something about his cabinet. Uh, James, uh, <laughs> uh, James, what did you what did you make of his speech? Yeah, I mean, much the, much the same as India. It was totally extraordinary to compare it to my experience watching um, Keir Starmer's speech. I mean, not as a as a, as a non as a non political nerd. Um, I found the experience of watching uh, Boris Johnson's speech infinitely more infinitely more entertaining. Um, and the time, I mean, it was about a third of the length of Keir Starmer's speech, but the time flew by. I do think the jokes were good. Um, I appreciated, as a fan of poetry, the um, elegy in a country churchyard reference. Uh, but I mean, obviously, at the end of it, what, 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 did, he, what did he really said of, of any substance? Um, the kind of things that stuck in my mind were uh, build back beaver, um, the depravity of pet thieves. Uh, and that's sort of those are the main takeaway points, which are probably a sign that it wasn't of immense uh, political or policy or policy seriousness. But I mean, I don't know. I wish I, you know, I wish I knew how much that mattered and how much people, you know, people watching it are just sort of like, oh, yeah, Boris Johnson projecting the sort of mood of optimism and bounciness, which is, you know, what attracted us to him. He's continuing to do that. Here are some. Does it matter that it seems like it's from a different universe? I would be fascinated to know. The um, uh, I, And I, also I, the idea, sorry to interrupt, also the idea that everything that's going wrong shows that things are going right. You know, it was, it's a kind of, yeah, slight, oh no, my phone, slightly mind-blowing concept. <laughs> Spot Boris Johnson's phoning you up to, to to tick you off and make clear. Isn't it? Well, let, well, let, hang on, I'm just going to hang. I'm just going to. You go. You myself. go and answer your phone, India. That's fine. Um, uh, we know our place in the pecking order. It might be, <laughs> might be somebody important. It might be somebody important. Might be the BBC or something. Um, uh, the thing that the thing that strikes me, Jane, my sort of t- big stand stand back takeaway from the two party conferences. In fact, I think it was something that Boris Johnson said. Was it in an interview on Sunday? He basically said, "It's all going to be fine." And that's essentially his entire pitch. The, uh, you know, his speech is this upbeat, boosterish, optimistic. You know, it's all going to be fine in the end. Just all cheer up. It's all going to be fine. And Labour's pitch is the it's all going to be fine shtick is wearing thin. And they just they just hope that people will decide it's not all, you know, that it's wearing a bit thin. And then they'll come out. And I'm not sure either of them are particularly strong political strategies. It is possible they are both wrong. Yes, I think I think I think you're I think completely right. I mean, I think the Labour thing about it's all going to be fine, shit wearing thin. I just sort of, I sort of, I don't know. I think there's probably no bounds to the to the sort of way that Boris Johnson manages to kind of enduringly appeal. I mean, he's been doing this for like you know, he's been in the public eye doing this for like twenty years, and it hasn't sort of it evidently hasn't worn thin for a lot of people yet. And I just, I just wonder that because it's such a sort of unusual, unique way to do politics that people will always continue to, there'll be a lot of people who always continue to just like someone who tells them everything's fine and tells them jokes and is cheery uh, because so many other politicians don't do that. And I just, I, I'm not sure I ever will wear thin. I'm not, I don't think it'll be fine either, but I wonder if when it's not fine, but you keep telling people it's going to be fine and it doesn't wear thin, then maybe <laughs> if you're Boris Johnson, it continues to be fine for you, if not for everyone else. That was my, that's perhaps my main takeaway. Um, India, you back with us? Yes, yes, here yeah, I am. I'm just, there's something quite interesting about the psychology of politics. And I, I think the Labour Party, this is a problem for the Labour Party, is that people want it to be fine. And and so if someone is, this sort of gloomy, though the country's yeah. going to the dogs, everything's miserable, your kids are doing terribly and all of that. People yeah. don't want to believe 
that that's true, unless you are ultra radicalized political and you th- you hate the toys and and all of that. In which case, of course, you think that's true. And then the moment you get a Labour government, everything's going to be perfect. But most people want to think that life is going to be all right. Yes, and- they don't want they want Winnie the Pooh. They want Tigger. You know, they don't want Eeyore standing in the corner going, oh, dear, this is all very gloomy and there is no hope. You know, it's incredibly depressing where I think people are aware that the, the country generally is kind of, you know, that things that the, things are sort of creaking at the edges and, and, and the, the uh, uplands aren't seeming that sunny at the moment. So, of course, I think people are going to respond psychologically better to somebody who says it's all going to be all right, sit tight, difficult bump in the road but then we turn the corner and it's blue skies all the way you know it's a nicer thing to believe unless as you say you're very very politically committed it's a nicer thing to be told than this is a catastrophe everything's falling apart and it's going to get worse even if that later interpretation latter interpretation is more accurate Uh, and james one of the um the one of the words of comfort season uh, is definitely scum. Uh, Deanna Davison, when she did, when her and I did the egg and spoon race yesterday, she she'd proudly been handing out five hundred badges it, with Conservative Party comments with Tory scum written on it. She claimed they were trying to reclaim the word, which struck me as a right. a, a, a bit weird. But you've you've written about this um, this this phenomenon of dismissing opponents as scum, uh, uh, James, and basically it, it's all completely natural. Yes, well. Um... Maybe natural, but not good. I, I, I think it's fascinating. I kind of love the sort of supercharged way that words sort of acquire their meanings and evolve. I think in the in the sort of age of social media and Twitter, everything happens so, so much faster. So it was only a few weeks ago that Angela Rayner um, was call, was calling Tory scum. It's now sort of gone all. It's sort of gone full circle. Now it's been reclaimed, and there are Tory activists chanting scum at themselves at their own party conference. Um, <laughs> which I just sort of find, I don't know, it's just like his words just move so quickly nowadays and it sort of, it feels hard to, feels hard to, um, I don't know, I kind of enjoy the madness of it. But yes, yeah, so I, I basically, this is, this is my opportunity for, um, I use this as an opportunity to um, get onto one of my, get onto one of my favourite hobby horses, um, which is about the way that um, I think people sort of, um, moral and political ideas about the world work. And the basic argument of my column was, um, I mean, I think obviously scum, I don't think anyone's scum. I don't think anyone should be call anyone, any, calling anyone scum. It's a horrible word. But I, without getting too much into, without getting too deep into my uh, obsessions in evolutionary psychiatry and things, basically, I think that all kind of everyone's moral ideas and moral visions of how the world works kind of depend on the being people who you think, you know, are human and who deserve moral um, you know, to be treated morally. And almost everyone, I think, has moral blind spots. And there'll be people, whether you're shouting scum at them or not, who you're not really sort of fully fully considering as, as human beings at all, perhaps. And this is a basic function of um, the way that human morality works, the way that evolutionary psychologists tell us it's evolved. We're, we're not, we've not evolved to see everyone as human and to think morality applies to everyone. Um, so before we get too superior about everyone calling people scum, I sort of think, I don't know, every, everybody has that moral blind spot. I hope that's explained it in simple enough terms. I, I well, no, but what, I thought was in, what I thought was interesting was that it wasn't necessarily... Uh, we didn't necessarily align with people uh, who were always necessarily good. We just aligned with people who were the same as us. The thing about the yes. puppets... Explain yeah, the yeah, puppets. Yeah. Explain oh, the puppets. This is one of my absolute favourite social psychology experiments. It makes me think how fun it must be to be a scientist. So um, the scientists at the Yale Infant Cognition Centre who staged a puppet show 
uh, for, for children. And in the puppet show, one of the puppets uh, was shown behaving incredibly cruelly, hitting other puppets, stealing their, stealing their possessions. The other one was shown to be very caring and loving. At the end of the show, um, the, all the babies were given a choice. Which puppet did they want to take home? All the babies took home uh, the friendly, loving puppet. A few years later, they made a more complex version of the experiment where they had the good puppet and the evil puppet. But this time the babies were told that one of the puppets, um, I think, shared their preference for either crackers or beans. This is apparently the kind of uh, stuff you go for when you're working with babies. And absolutely across the board, all the babies took home the puppet they felt they had this thing in common with, with their favourite food stuff, rather than the puppet that was behaving morally or immorally. So this kind of very loose sense of connection, maybe, I mean, crackers and beans probably very important to you when you're a baby, but this sort of sense of connection and tenuous kind of group identity completely trumped, completely trumped morality. So a baby would see this kind of horrible puppet, and if they knew they liked the same thing as the puppet, that would be the puppet they sort of preferred. I mean, the sound sort of, I mean, this, these things always had a little bit wishy-washy and stuff. I just think it's fascinating little kind of insight into this really fundamental way that human psychology works, that as soon as feel this little sense of connection with someone, we're completely willing to overlook their sort of moral bad behaviour. And I just, I mean, you know, anyone on the Twitter account can see this every day, that, you know, everybody is, you know, thinks the other side is evil and will overlook all kinds of horrible things people on their own side are doing simply because we just don't see that as immoral. That's just a complete blind spot for us. I thought it was really interesting. And actually, it's one of those things where, you know, Labour, Labour people happen to defend Angela Rayner calling Tories scum because they think the Tories are scum. But I was thinking, imagine if Boris Johnson had got up at a, at a function and called Angela Rayner scum. Uh, we'd have never heard the last of it. Um, um, India, James has shared his. What's your favourite ever psychological experiment? <laughs> <laughs> that is really putting me on the spot, and I can't think of a single one. That Only really James Marriott has an answer to that question. James <laughs> Marriott has an array of psychological experiments to pick from at will. Um, I do not. I'm trying to think, and I just can I can't. can I can I tell can I tell my hunter gatherer story, or are we running? Yeah, out of go on then on if you one? want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, well, then we'll let then we'll <laughs> let India speak. Was that a bit of weariness <laughs> your voice? Um, so the other the other anecdote I had in this column was um, I was speaking to a couple of years ago. I interviewed um, this Oxford anthropologist called Robin Dunbar, who was talking about the way that um, the moral universes of hunter gatherer tribes um, exist, and this obviously is the kind of social environment in which humans have lived for most of their evolutionary history. And he was saying that in hunter-gatherer tribes, the word for people in your tribe usually translates as some version of the people. And then you just don't apply the word people to anyone else outside your, outside your tribe, whether they're humans or animals or anyone outside the tribe. There will be some kind of word that means the animals and that's everyone else. And your moral principles don't apply to the people outside your tribe. And I just always think that is such a little interesting, again, another interesting nugget of human psychology that if we bear in mind, just tells us, you know, I think you should notice it everywhere. There's sort of fundamental human instincts. Anyway, sorry. Um, it's like um, it's like bonobo monkeys and chimpanzees. Bonobo monkeys are really amazing, and they live they live in a kind of completely communal, cooperative way with what looks like kindness. So if one if if the old bonobo monkey who's you know ailing um, uh, starts kind of being a bit rubbish, they help him. And they're kind to him and they may elect another. Actually, I don't even think they have leaders. I think everything is sort of communal. And chimpanzees are incredibly, terrifyingly violent and brutal and tear the head off the dying chimpanzee and so on. And they live in completely uh, different ways. I don't quite know what my point is, but I'm for the commune. 
India Knight and James Marriott then, of course, you can read them both in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, that exclusive interview with Sir Stuart Eldon from the Parole Board. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for, uh, it's very rare actually, you don't very often hear from anyone from the Parole Board. And it's the first time, so Stuart Eldon, former uh, UK diplomat to NATO, it's the first time he's ever given a, an interview about his work with the Parole Board. Uh, so here it is. Let's start right at the beginning, which I always think is a good, uh, a good uh, place to start. Explain the role of the Parole Board. What does it actually do and how does work cross, cross the Parole Board's desk? Well, thanks, Matt. I mean, the Parole Board's, function is to decide whether certain offenders can be released from prison. Now, it's a, um, it's a common misconception, I think, that the parole board sees every prisoner who is released. Uh, in fact, they only see about 5% of them. And the board deals with the most serious offenders, uh, prisoners serving a life sentence, prisoners serving an indeterminate sentence for public protection, which is a bit like a life sentence, uh, but uh, which has now been discontinued, uh, and certain extended sentence prisoners who have a determinate sentence with a period in prison and a period outside prison in the community. And we also see uh, a number of recalled offenders, people who've been released but then sent back to prison for some reason, whether they've broken the terms of their licence or committed an offence or, or something else. So the first thing to say is that the parole board deals with serious cases. Uh, what we have to do is determined by Parliament. And it's a, it's a test that sounds simple, but is actually sometimes quite complicated to reach a decision on. And we have to decide whether it's necessary to protect the public uh, that somebody continues to be detained in custody. So we're very focused on risk. And we have to decide whether the risk somebody poses is low enough to be managed in the community, and whether there is a risk management plan in place that will do that safely. Are you able to uh, give us an example of a case 
uh, I don't know if you can probably give us the, the actual name of the case, but describe a, a serious case that you've had uh, as, a mem- as a member of the parole board. How many of you are looking at that case and what, what are the trade-offs, what are the things that you are looking at when deciding whether or not a prisoner A is released or, or not? Well, you'll understand I can't get into details of individual cases because uh, the parole board's a court-like body and parole hearings uh, are conducted, they have judicial force. So you'll understand I can't uh, comment on individual uh, details. But what happens really is that um, somebody's case is referred to the parole board by the Secretary of State. After that happens, a parole board member, a single member, looks at it Uh, and decides whether it can be concluded on the papers without a formal hearing. Uh, That happens quite a lot um, in recall cases, uh, but the case has to be simple enough uh, to be dealt with fairly on the papers. And I I should say, obviously, there are two parties to the case, the Secretary of State and the offender. And after its prime focus on risk, the board is very keen to be fair to everyone. To both sides. So if the case is determined uh, for to be fit to be determined on the papers, then that's settled and uh, the offender has a chance to appeal that hearing and ask for an oral hearing. If it's deemed to be too complicated uh, to be sorted out on the papers, then it goes to a parole board panel. And depending on the case, that can be one, two or three parole board members. And then a hearing will be held. The the board will look at a very large dossier. I suppose the average is about two to three hundred pages, but the worst I've had is about two thousand. And then decide after questioning all the witnesses whether um, somebody is of low enough risk to be released. And what what are you looking when you've got two thousand pages of of what is that sort of. Um, uh, psychiatric reports, records of how they behaved in prison, details presumably of the case that that put them in prison, um, the way they've behaved, the the contacts they've had with the outside world. What what is in that? What are you what are you weighing up all the time? Well, all of the above, really, but it depends on the case. We'll always get um, the judge's sentencing remarks from the trial. And I think it's important also to to be clear that the parole board is not retrying the offence. The offence is what it is and the sentence is what it is. Uh, We're just looking at risk. So we'll start off with the trial judge's sentencing remarks. We'll usually see uh, a pre-sentence report if one was prepared. Probation do that for the court service. So we'll, we'll see what probation thought at the time. And then we'll have all sorts of reports. We'll have details of previous offending. Uh, We'll have reports from uh, the uh, prison or probation officer managing the person in prison. Uh, We'll have a report from the probation officer who will be responsible for managing the case in the community. And they'll make a recommendation uh, on whether uh, the person is suitable to be released or not. Then if there are psychological or psychiatric issues, we'll have mental health reports Uh, We may have um, details from the prison record system about how they've behaved, whether there are any security entries and so on. So it all adds up to quite a lot. And uh, the panel just makes a decision based on its view after questioning the witnesses at the hearing. And that's the prisoner and usually the people who've written the reports. And then it will form a judgment on whether that person's risk is is low enough to be to be released. I suppose it's such a... um... 
complicated, fascinating uh, situation that you find yourselves in because you've got a prisoner in front of you saying, uh, I'm I'm uh, full of remorse or I've, I'm a changed man and I'm going to go out into the community and be a, be a good citizen again. And you're sort of trying to find, trying to test what is going on in someone's head. What sort of evidence can you reach for to get a, a real idea as to whether or not they're 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 telling the truth? Well, it's it's really important both to read the papers you've got in front of you in the dossier, and then actually to listen to people explain themselves. Uh, and sometimes the the outcome of a case can change quite dramatically. You know, you often read a dossier, and you think it's going to go one way on the papers and then you'll talk to the people involved um, and then form a view at the end of it all and sometimes that view can be different sometimes uh, witnesses can change their recommendations but there's a lot of questioning that goes on I mean the it's um, it's a court-like process but it's inquisitorial it's based on questioning rather than being adversarial with the two sides putting arguments against each other Uh, and the board will probe quite a lot Uh, At every hearing, uh, the offender is going to get questioned in real detail and real depth. And we'll form a view on what, or the panel will form a view on what it thinks based on everyone's answers. Uh, And although COVID has meant that a lot of parole hearings these days are done remotely uh, on a video link or by telephone, um, there's no substitute, I think, for being able to gauge a person by watching their reactions. And then the evidence is tested. So um, if uh, an offender puts forward one argument about why he or she should be released, uh, then the panel will usually test it with the expert witnesses, uh, the parole witnesses. And if there's a psychologist or psychiatrist present at the hearing, then we'll want to hear what they think as well. And uh, Is your um, starting point, uh, every person who comes before you should, should be released unless we can find a reason not to or is it uh this person has to prove that they should be released what's your sort of mindset going as you approach each case now the starting point's really simple and it's can that person's risk be managed safely in the community and that's it it's all about risk and do you think um are there times when you're 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 just stumped by a case that actually i mean you just have to make it i suppose you have to make a decision but so these things are complicated. Human beings are really complicated. And, and ultimately, I suppose you have to live with the, the consequences of that decision, the risk that somebody might reoffend, they might go back to abusing a partner or a, you know, rapist, murderers. You know, these are, these are high stake decisions that you're making. Do you feel that, that pressure? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and every case is different. I mean, one of the reasons I enjoy doing this job is that, you know, after nearly 12 years now, um, I'm always amazed that something new, something different comes up. So every case is its own. Um, But I mean, it might just help to give you a few figures. Um, Of the 5 to 10% of uh, releasable prisoners that come before the board, only one in four meets the release test. Uh, So, um, you know, not by no means everyone gets out. It's roughly one in four. That's the statistics. Um, And of those who are released, uh, the serious further offending rate is one half of 1%. And while every further offence is a tragedy, obviously, um, I think that shows that the board takes an awful lot of care over the job it does. So, 
you know, it is, you're right, it's a difficult position to be in, but we'll attempt to do our job to the best of our ability. Obviously, with those sort of very high profile cases, uh, it becomes not just sort of a, a legal uh, debate, but it becomes a very political debate. Um, uh, probably one of the most high profile in recent times was the case of uh, the so-called black cab rapist John Warboys. He was judged to be safe to be free by the parole board. That, there was a big political row about that. That decision was later overturned by the High Court. Do you think that the parole board is, you know, there's been lots of talk about the parole board changing, uh, being more transparent in the decision makers. Do you think that, has, have enough changes been made to ensure that there's not a repeat of that? Or do you think that that's just the nature of these are very highly contentious cases? Well, highly contentious cases are always going to be highly contentious and, <laughs> and difficult. Uh, I mean, the board would like to be more transparent. Um, and there's a, a, an ongoing review of the board going on in the Ministry of Justice. And I'm sure that uh, there'll be some changes in relation to that. But transparency is important, but there are sensitivities that, goes, that go with it. Um, and you've got to ensure that there's an atmosphere in parole hearings which will encourage all witnesses to speak frankly. Uh, and as you've implied yourself, you know, there's a, there's a lot of quite difficult and personal stuff that comes out in parole hearings. Um, and we've got to keep on creating the environment where people will speak their minds and speak their minds honestly and, you know, give advice to the board uh, that is honest and represents their views. So that's, that's one thing that has to be taken account of when you consider transparency. Well, I suppose the thing is that the, the case that's put that person into prison has been played out in public and people had to give their full and frank and honest uh, accounts uh, for that. Do you, would it not be better if, if the parole board hearings were held in public, the press could attend, victims' families could attend, they could see the process being played out, rather than this idea of... When you said you've been doing it for 12 years, I and mean, we're very grateful that you're here, but it's the first time you've, you've spoken about it in public. And actually, transparency of us, this conversation is fascinating, but actually the transparency of letting people see what goes on in those hearings would make a huge difference, wouldn't it? Well, I think the evidence in parole hearings is a bit different from the evidence that um, that's often heard in court. Um, so that's one thing to say. But I do want to repeat that the board thinks that transparency is important. Um, and this also, I think, leads on to the question of victims, who are central to the criminal justice system. They're central to um, the parole uh, process as well. And they, all, they currently have the right to uh, read a personal statement in parole hearings, as they do in court. Um, but I think there's likely to be a, a, a pilot scheme started quite soon, uh, under which they'll have the right to uh, apply to observer hearing if they want to. Um, but you shouldn't underestimate the stress of all of this, and the stress cuts both ways. Uh, I've seen victims in parole hearings really deeply emotionally moved by going through the process. Uh, and it's important that the board takes account of those sensitivities. Equally, I have to say, I've seen a case where an offender has basically gone into a state of nervous collapse on hearing a, a victim personal statement and has had to withdraw from the process for a while. So you've got to balance quite carefully those, those sort of emotional considerations. Uh, and I do think the evidence, as I say, is a little bit different from what you hear in court. 
Although I suppose actually, I, mean, I imagine lots of people listening to this would think the uh, the, the the prisoner hearing the impacts of their crime uh, from the victim is, is probably part. I mean, we hear that in court cases too, and that's probably part of of the process. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was was how you feel about these full life orders, the full life sentences. Felicity Jerry QC has written in the Times today saying that the problem with a whole life sentence is an exercise in retribution. She says it's too close to the injustice that is the death penalty. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that uh, uh, release is part me, of... Yeah, that's not for me to say, I'm afraid, as a parole board member. You know, as I said earlier, we're not retrying the case. Uh, and we, we've got a job to do. Uh, the parameters of that job are well set out by Parliament, and we're simply looking at risk. So I, I don't think I want to comment on whole life orders or not. They're available to the judiciary. Uh, they've been approved by Parliament. And I think that's, as far as the parole board is concerned, the end of the matter. Because that just means it's not a case that will, that will come uh, in front of you. You touched on the, the, this root and branch review that the Ministry of Justice are doing. I mean, it was launched uh, a year ago, and we still don't really know what's happened. We've now got a new Justice Secretary, so I suspect we might be slightly back to square one uh, on that. There seems to be lots of ideas floated around, maybe even renaming the parole board, to, to, something that takes more account of, you know, is the risk to release or... or uh, the, the, actually reflect the decisions that you're making. Do you think that as part of the opening up the process, increasing transparency, renaming it and giving it much more openness should be part of that, that review? Oh, heavens. Um, I'm all in favour of openness, personally, but I'm just a simple parole board member. I'll sit there <laughs> and wait for the outcome of the review. I mean, there's not much more I can say. Um, I mean, there's a lot of issues going on. Um, and being considered by the MOJ as part of the review. Uh, the board's uh, submitted um, you know, its own views in response to the public consultation on the review. Uh, and I think we just have to wait and see what happens, wait and see what comes out of it all. I know that um, Martin Jones, who's the chief executive of the parole board, has talked a lot about the um, uh, mental health of prisoners. So the cr criminal justice system needs to be better, do better at looking at the mental health of prisoners to ensure that they have the support that they need. Is that, is that a failure of the system in order for people to get... By the time people get to the parole board stage, they need to have had that support, don't they, to, so that they are in a position to, to be released safely. Is that, is that something that concerns you? Does there need to be more mental health support? Yeah, it, it is amazing how many um, offenders have mental health issues of one sort or another. Uh, and that's why the board has got quite a large number of um, psychologists and psychiatrists sitting as members of it. And yes, I mean, I would favour, um, you know, people being given the mental health support they need. But, you know, as with the, the wider NHS, there are resource issues here. Uh, so quite often, by the time a case comes to the board, uh, the offender will not have had all the mental health support they need. Uh, and one thing the board can usefully do is to jog the system along to make sure that those um, factors are taken into account, whether somebody remains in prison uh, or is released into the community, because we'll look, uh, in the case of release, at the risk management plan that probation puts forward. And if uh, somebody has mental health issues in prison, it follows that the risk management plan must have some mental health considerations uh, put into it as well. Do you think this is a phrase that often gets banded about in this, uh, these, uh, in this debate? Do you think prison works? Do I think prison works? Yeah, I guess it does. Um, I mean, I've seen people go through the system and come out uh, having really changed. Um, I've seen other people who've not changed. And I've seen still more people or still other people who've become institutionalised. 
Um, you know, I have a case in front of me at the moment where somebody is 20 years over their tariff. And you can't help but wonder what effect that has on, on a person. So that's someone, so that's someone who's, who's, who's served the sentence as originally handed down by uh, yeah, the Yeah, a, a life sentence with a, a tariff, but hasn't been deemed fit for release. So I suppose in that case, the idea that they, they, they've served the sentence they were handed, and then in theory, the system then should prepare them to be able to release. 20 years over, that just suggests that... Maybe some people aren't uh, able to be... Um, yeah, that's, that's entirely possible. Uh, and it all comes down to the basic test of risk I mentioned earlier. Uh, to be released on a life sentence. The sentence is life. There's a minimum period set by the sentencing judge um, before which somebody cannot be released. And then after that, it's a matter for the parole board. Um, and I should say the parole board doesn't lead to early release. I mean, if somebody has a tariff of 12 years, they will not get considered by the parole board, for example, until those 12 years are up. Do you think things like when people hear life tariff, full life sentence, full life order, life means different things to different people in different sentences, um, as in sentences when people are speaking. Do you think when some people hear that someone's got a life sentence... Lots of the public think that means they're going to spend the rest of their lives in, in prison and then in, they hear the parole board has released them and that feels like that, that isn't justice being done. Do you think the language of some of these things would be better if they were changed? Well, I think language can often get convoluted. I mean, I think that's a, you know, a feature of all courts sometimes. Um, but it's important that people understand that a life sentence means life in the sense that Somebody will serve his tariff sent by the sentencing judge in prison, but then for the rest of their lives, they'll be on licence in the community. And if they break the terms of that licence, they can go back to prison again. Uh, yeah, and I suppose people just need to sort of uh, uh, understand that. Um, it's, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. We had lots of people messaging so they didn't know about how any of this uh, worked. So I'm, it's really nice to have you here to explain it. I did mention at the beginning, you are also a former UK ambassador to NATO. Um, and uh, I just wondered whether your your diplomatic skills, to what extent do you draw on your, your diplomatic skills when you are trying to pick through these, these tricky cases? Yeah, well, some of the skills are the same. I mean, diplomats have to be able to read large amounts of information and sort out what's really important and what really matters, more importantly. And diplomats also have to have good questioning skills. We've got to be able to form a view about what people are thinking and what they're doing and their motivations behind it. So I think to a great extent, some of the skills are the same. The context is obviously very different. And personally, I find it very refreshing to be doing parole board work as opposed to dealing with foreign affairs a lot of the time. <laughs> Prisoners are easier to deal with than other, than other countries' diplomats. Is that what you're saying? Oh, God, no. I wouldn't say anything's <laughs> easier than anything else. But um, uh, it's good to have a change. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.